This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show, and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation upon whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation upon whose land we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Now, tonight's show is about greenwash. It was Kurt's idea. He wanted to find out how we can, how you can dress yourself fashionably without a huge carbon footprint. So he spoke to Sandra Caponi of Good On You. And then James Whitmore took it a bit further. Building on the simpler life we've all tasted in lockdown, he talked to Dr. Ted Trainer about how a simpler life at scale will take the carbon out of a lot of things. And my idea... I went back to the book by Guy Pearce on greenwash and Guy wasn't available. In fact, about five people I invited weren't actually available. So it started for me in the Sydney Underground. There was a huge ad showing a pretty woman, tick. She's Asian, tick. She wears a hard hat, tick. And the only words were Santos, good for Australia. And it happened just at the time when this company has won approval to open up a new gas field in the Pilliga Forest in New South Wales. We heard last week, you may remember, the anguish of those who have put in thousands of submissions and have been ignored. You know, over 90% of the submissions to the um, Independent Commission were against that project. Their care for the land... The great artesian water and the climate make them the most righteous citizens in my mind. So how can a project that would contribute to global heating be good for Australia? Well, that's greenwash. So I will look at the ads that have softened us up to gas being cleaner than coal. Lots of people believe that. And so let's listen to some of the ads without the seductive pictures and get a feel for greenwash. Guy Pearce says we need to wise up to the way ads sell more than a product. They sell a way of life. They sell values like endless growth. They also contain the reputational damage that fossil fuel companies must be feeling as the public knows objectively we can't go on with fossil fuels till 2050, which is some of the targets they've got. But subliminally, we want our cosy life to go on forever. As Royal Dutch Shell said, we cannot go faster than society. We cannot sell what customers don't want. It should really make you sick. Tonight we're talking about greenwash. Well, what is it? Shell are one of the world's largest oil companies and have produced numerous publicity campaigns to show how much they love the environment. But when Shell implied that a $10 billion oil extraction project in Canada was a sustainable energy investment, the Advertising Standards Agency recognised this as greenwash. Greenwash is a marketing technique that promotes the image of an organisation as environmentally friendly when they are anything but. Gathering around the fire touches one of our deepest desires to be warm, together and included. 
the fact that more gas in the atmosphere will cause unbearable heating, danger and dislocation is soothed out of our minds like this. Natural gas makes the fire that does more than instantly warm you. The atmosphere created by a blazing natural gas fire increases sociability and draws people together. Natural gas. Once you've got it, you'll get it. You might wonder why a gas company wants to sponsor a music festival. Well, 280,000 attended the Midsummer Festival in Melbourne. And AGL was there with AGL t-shirts, banners and a queer-friendly dress-up tent. This season we're doing something really special called Queer Unsettled, which explores the queer Indigenous experience through live art and performance. We have a very strong responsibility, I guess, in finding what parts of our community's voices aren't being heard and we can tell our stories in a, a public and really positive way. Our corporate partners actually enables us to do what we do. A lot of that support goes directly to our mentorship programs, it goes to the work that we're developing with communities who otherwise don't have a voice. With AGL there's been a really strong engagement with the staff itself. We can have a year-round dialogue to find other ways we can help within the culture of that organisation. As a queer person with a body that hasn't always been accepted, Midsummer Festival means a lot to me. Seeing everyone come together and feel safe to present their true authentic selves, that really makes all of the long hours worth it. Gloucester was a town that said no to AGL. Listeners to this program will remember their huge battle. The gas company whose fracking would have poisoned their aquifer now explains why they listen to the public. We want to be a trusted partner for our communities. This means that we need to listen to them, we need to understand their needs and priorities and we need to be making decisions that are informed by that understanding. Social licence is the ongoing acceptance by the community of AGL's activities, what we do today and what we want to do in future. I love working at AGL because I want to be a change maker and AGL is a major Australian company that has a fantastic opportunity to create positive impact in the community and I can be instrumental in helping make that change. The fact that Bayswater Power Station emits 19.8 million tonnes of greenhouse gases every year seems to be made sort of okay by a man called Ducky. He tells us how many jobs AGL will provide here. Others will remember a hero of climate action, the late Peter Gray, who brought the first ever legal action to curb greenhouse gas pollution over this very power station in 2009. I'm Michael Duck, they call me Ducky. I work at an AGL Bayswater power station and so did my father. I was a scholarship student and then a graduate engineer. Now I'm a night manager on a 24-7 project. There's nearly a thousand people working on the project. It means we'll power a lot more homes without any additional coal. It's a really good job knowing that you're powering so much in the state. The Guardian newspaper decided this year to refuse all ads for oil and gas. That's £500,000 per year in revenue lost. 
They were driven by the urgency of climate action reported by their journalists. And I wonder, should all media outlets refuse fossil fuel ads as they once learned to refuse tobacco? Many of us are worried about the climate crisis. Many of us feel guilty. Many of us want to try to fix the problem. But where should we focus our efforts? Well, here's one place we could start. New research commissioned by The Guardian has shown that just 20 fossil fuel companies are directly related to more than a third of the greenhouse gases that have been wrecking our climate since industry became aware of the risks in the 1960s. So however much we care about our personal consumption, what really matters is political action to rein in the oil, gas and coal companies. Among privately owned firms, Chevron, Exxon, BP and Shell are high on the list of climate polluters, which is topped by Saudi Aramco and Gazprom. They and 14 other companies have drilled and pumped out the equivalent of 480 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide since 1965. Billions of us around the world use their products every day to fuel our cars or heat our homes, so we're all partly responsible. But the fossil fuel industry was warned about the risks a long time ago, yet it has funded campaigns since then to spread doubt about climate science. In 1965, the US President's Scientific Advisory Committee warned that fossil fuels were causing more carbon dioxide, which was altering the air on a global scale, with huge risks for humankind. Soon after that, the head of the American Petroleum Institute warned the industry that time was running out to deal with this. In 1981, an internal Exxon memo warns, it is distinctly possible that CO2 emissions from the company's 50-year plan will later produce effects which will indeed be catastrophic, at least for a substantial fraction of the Earth's population. But then, 20 years later, Exxon decided to take out an ad in the New York Times and deliberately tried to play down the connection. Skip forward another two decades and Chevron, Exxon and BP each donate more than half a million dollars to the inauguration campaign of Donald Trump, perhaps the world's most famous climate denier. Given the sheer weight of scientific knowledge and public concern, you'd think the petroleum industry would be trying to pull less oil and gas out of the ground. But you'd be wrong. They're actually planning to pump out more, which would destroy any chance we have of keeping global temperatures at a safe level. So reining in our dependence on fossil fuels and ramping up the transition to renewable energy has never been more important, both for us and for countless generations to come. But that's not just about personal choices, it's about political action. So we know about fossil fuel money funding conservative think tanks that dispute climate science. We've had a lot of that over the last decade. They lobby and donate and their media wields enormous power. 
But Professor Robert Brule of Philadelphia says that most environmentalists are not really aware how much these fossil fuel p- companies pay for advertisements, how sophisticated their techniques are, and how advertising is their biggest expenditure. There is a fight back. Greenpeace UK has a campaign to say that greenwash ads have no place in our society. They say that oil companies like BP got us into the climate emergency and at the same time they're bombarding us with their ads to convince us that they are not the climate wreckers we know they are. Then there's the Guardian newspaper. This year they decided to stop accepting ads from oil and gas and they are the first major news outlet to divest. And when you think of it, a lot of newspapers are getting on board with climate journalism that's really telling us a lot. It's a top issue now, but they still, on the next page, have a great big advertisement for the very thing that is fueling climate change. So there's a, a disconnect there, and I'm really, I think this program should get you onto it as it has me. And then I found Client Earth. They're a non-profit law firm in the UK and they said they were sorry they couldn't provide a speaker for us in the time I gave them. And I'll get back to them later because they're doing a case in defence of the Torres Strait Island people. Client Earth alleged that oil giant BP misled the public by giving the impression that they were into low carbon energy when 90%, 96% of their annual spend is on oil and gas. One of their uh, lawyers is Sophie Marjanak and she's also an Australian. She said oil and gas companies spend millions to convince the public of their social license and to also deflect from their role in rapidly heating the planet. The company withdrew the ads and Sophie said this decision sets a precedent for people to hold companies to account for their greenwash. I'll leave you with her question. Should fossil fuel ads be banned or should they at least carry a tobacco-style health warning quoting the IPCC's words on the dangers of continuing to extract and burn fossil fuel? Now here's Juice Media showing what the fight back sounds like. Hello, I'm from the Australian Government. As we head into the worst economic recession in living history, what the nation needs now is leadership, evidence-based policies and bold vision and if we have those. So instead, we've cooked up something else. That's right. While you've been in lockdown, we too have been busy baking. No, not sourdough. The kind your grandkids will still be tasting decades from now. Introducing our disaster economic recovery plan. Derp, 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 derp. Brought to you by the empty sack of ideas that is Scott's ministry. Derp will take the money we have for our economic recovery, the one chance we have not to lose a generation to a lifetime of hardship, and throw it in a volcano. Or to put it in lay terms, give it to the gas industry. Gas is what's called a transition fuel. It fuels the transition of dollars from public coffers into the bank accounts of private companies who pay no tax and create tons of emissions. Will it create jobs? A volcano would literally employ more people through tourism and provide cheaper heating bills since the volcano can't be exported overseas. Which is exactly what we do with gas and the reason you pay so much for it. Is DERP supported by experts? Yes, the ones we've appointed to our advisory committee, which we've stacked with former gas executives, mining lobbyists and chinless neoliberal spivs. Oh look, there's even a director of a Saudi oil company in there. Cool and normal. Actual experts are saying that instead of DERP, we should 
should invest in renewables since our own science agency shows they're performing better than coal and gas. But Angus said, F evidence. Let's invest your money in bullshit solutions like carbon capture, which no credible study says will ever work, but which gives his mates a because it lets them keep polluting and making the ching-ching. Fantastic, great move. Well done, Angus. Others are saying we should look to history for answers. Remember that time the US government ended the Great Depression by spending massively on a strong social safety net and employing people to build tons of stuff? Bridges, roads, hospitals? If only there were an urgent need today for a similar nation-building project, such as decarbonising our economy, which would bring back to our shores high-tech manufacturing jobs, employ millions, and at the same time ensure a living planet for our children. Nope, can't think of one. Besides, we can't afford all that. Well, we could pay for it with the money Josh found behind the couch last week after realising he underestimated JobKeeper by $60 billion. Whoops. And there'd still be enough left over to bail out all those who missed out. And not cut Newstart back to poverty levels. But why do all that when we can subsidise an industry that manufactures f all? Apart from holes in the ground and continent-scale bushfires. In order to feed you this turd sandwich, we'll be moving things along fast to try and overwhelm you with Oh look, we just approved a new coal mine while you couldn't protest. Cause the last thing we want is for you to have time to realise how important this moment of history is. How consequential our choices are at this crucial juncture. And come together to stop us from wasting it. With derp. Join us next week for more we cooked up while you're in lockdown. Like our handout to renovate rich people's homes. Instead of public housing and those who lost theirs in the fires. Australian government. Lol, we're gonna get us all killed. Authorised by the Department for Wasting Historic Opportunities. Now let's hear from Australian singer Carmen Mojito with her song, Your House is on Fire.
You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show at Radio 3CR and Radio Skid Row. Now here's Kurt Johnson with a way to avoid the greenwashing of clothes. Over the last few decades, fashion has developed a pretty bad rep. The huge amount of resources poured into clothing manufacturing, the waste at every stage, and the corresponding impact on the planet. But that's not even beginning to discuss the labour conditions on which it, under which it is manufactured. Throughout the fashion world, there has been a response to consumers' anxieties about this rep. And almost to a label, they have developed a portfolio of claims regarding sustainability, workers' conditions, and their footprint on the planet. But do they stack up? I am joined by Sandra Caponi over Zoom. Sandra is the co-founder of Good On You, a platform dedicated to empowering consumers seeking to ethically and sustainably navigate the world of fashion. Sandra has a list of achievements as long as my arm, including being named one of the world's top 50 badass women, together with our mate Greta Thunberg. Thanks, Sandra, for coming on the show. Thanks, Ken. It's good to talk to you. Yeah, you too. How authentic do you think the fashion world's response has been to consumers' concerns about the impact that it's having on the planet? I think it's mixed. I mean, the rise of conscious consumerism is pretty hard for the industry to ignore. So we're definitely seeing more and more fashion brands respond and take action. Even the two largest fashion brands in the world, H&M and Zara, have made huge bold commitments to reduce their environmental footprint. They've even launched sustainable fashion collections, which says something. But there is still a big question mark over how genuine and impactful this response has been, especially for the bigger companies. And our research at Good On You shows that performance is still highly variable and there's still, sadly, a really long way to go for fashion to improve impacts on the planet. Now, now this is a show about climate change and this program is about greenwashing uh, in particular. And there have been a flurry of claims across fashion labels trying to improve their image. For example, I had a look at Cotton On and I went to their website. They have this related website, which is called Cotton On Group. But then you go into the shop and everything is so cheap and the cynic in me is screaming, how's that possible? In high-end fashion, there's obviously more of a margin, but is it possible to have fast fashion that is ethical and sustainable? Short answer, no. I, I think it's illogical. By definition, fast fashion is all about producing huge amounts of clothes as quickly and cheaply as possible so we can all buy more and more stuff that we, we don't really need and ultimately ends up as waste in landfill. And that business model is just not sustainable. I don't see how it ever will. Even with mm. innovations like circular fashion and recycling clothes, it's just a, a, a linear model that, that drives waste. Yeah, I mean, fast fashion also drives a system of squeezing suppliers further down the chain. Most fashion production still occurs in places like Bangladesh and China where labour is cheaper and, and exploitation of workers is almost inevitable. So when you go into Cotton On and, and you're buying a, a $5 t-shirt and I, I can't help but hmm. the cynic in me I think speaks to the cynic in you and 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 worries about who's actually paying the price for that t-shirt if someone um, as big as cotton on make, makes a change I think they're they're a member of the better cotton initiative for example that that can have a, a big impact over time I also noticed that um, Gucci obviously a high higher end brand has gone carbon neutral 
And I went to Fitzroy back when shops were open and found some uh, vegan shoes. And these were terms that were brandished really, really proudly. Um, I'm in a shop, though, and I have very little time to, to read the small print. So enter good on you. How, envir- how are environmentally loaded phrases like sustainable bandied around the fashion world without evidence to prove it? Yeah, well, sustainability issues in fashion are, are complex from climate change impacts to human rights and, and animal welfare. It's a minefield for consumers and, and for industry. Um, and to make matters even more complicated, there's no regulation or formal consensus on standards. In fact, there's literally hundreds of standards and certifications in fashion alone. And for a while, fashion brands were almost silent on their sustainability Mm. practices, making consumer choices impossible. But then this growing concern among consumers for brands to talk about sustainability has has led some to, to market it, which on the one hand, it's, it's a step in the right direction, brands being more transparent, but then again, it's hard to know what's what's spin or, or truth. Um, so even if you were to read the small print, it would be pretty hard um, sift through all the greenwashing and to make choices um, based on the things you really cared about, which goes to the crux of why we created Good On You. Can you speak for, for a little bit about the methodology that you use to rate uh, fashion labels? Sure. Um, Basically, we we started by considering three main things that we know consumers care about and and that brand um, to develop a sustainable business model. And that is um, a brand's impact on labour, the environment and animals. Then within those three areas, we look at over 100 sustainability issues and indicators covering a brand's resource use, their uh, energy, chemical and water use, how they trace suppliers, how they treat their workers, how they protect animal welfare. Transparency is really core to our approach because we know it drives brands to be more accountable and to make positive progress over time, but mainly because we are all about advocating for the consumer's right to know. So, Our rating system essentially uses tech to collect and aggregate public information on a brand's impact that are indicators of their impact on those three things, people, planet, animals. So there are labels, though, that are making a genuine attempt at altering their practices in a measurable way to reduce greenhouse emissions, right? Definitely. I I mentioned before that there's still a long way for the industry to go, but there are also brands stepping up and showing leadership. Many people jump to Patagonia as an obvious one, um, but there are other household names like Adidas and Levi's that are taking important, meaningful, measurable action. Levi's, for instance, has actually set a science-based target to reduce its greenhouse emissions generated from its own operations but also across its supply chain and and it reports regularly on how it's tracking to meet that target um from an environmental perspective that's that's industry leading and Mm. um yes it's a benchmark for others others to step up as well are there many other uh fashion labels that are that are going at that depth to be able to to offset their carbon emissions um yes and another example i mean it's definitely hard but it's possible um Mm. and 
just because it's difficult doesn't mean brands shouldn't be taking responsibility and, and taking those steps. Because most of the impact, most of the emissions don't occur at, at headquarters. They occur down the supply chain in manufacturing and even at you know the sourcing of raw materials. Another great example is Stella McCartney, more in, more in the luxury fashion space. Stella McCartney herself is a vegetarian and was pioneering the use of a lot of vegan materials. But equally, she and her brand have set, again, a science-based target and they measure what is technically called scope one, two and three emissions and report on um, their progress against reducing emissions against all those tiers. It's, It's technical, it's not easy, it requires working really closely with suppliers because they're the ones that that need to measure and report on their activity in order for a brand to understand, um, yeah, the the impact of their direct and indirect operations. Has there been uh, any feedback from uh, where Good On You has actually resulted in a label improving their practices? Yeah, brands reach out to us all the time. Um, Lots of brands that um, are maybe smaller and really wanting to position themselves as sustainable um, are keen to be rated by Good On You so that they can so that they can improve their performance and reach our community. Um, and lots of those smaller brands have actually used our ratings as a framework to understand what are the key issues they should be addressing and should be communicating to people. Um, but large brands reach out to us too. Sometimes they're not always happy with us in the first conversation because we may not have rated them so well. <laughs> um, but just recently, you know, for instance, we spoke to Nike and H&M who now um, regularly contact us to update us on when they've published more or improved um, their practices and initiatives around sustainability, um, which is so cool. It shows that they they realise there's a big concern among consumers for the issues and sustainable fashion is really hitting the mainstream so they better better do something about it that's awesome that's really great and as you said good on you rates labels not just in terms of their their carbon emissions but also their impact on animals and the conditions the labor conditions under which they're manufactured are these generally improving as well again i think it's mixed there's definitely more brands talking about these things there's more brands that are becoming certified fair trade that are adopting initiatives to trace their suppliers and publish their supplier list last year we saw a big move of towards more brands banning fur and other animal products, developing vegan ranges. But then during the pandemic just recently, we saw hundreds, maybe thousands of brands cancel orders that had already been produced by their suppliers, again, in places like Bangladesh and and China, putting vulnerable people at, at risk, literally risking people's lives. Even Boohoo recently, a massive fast fashion brand in the UK, came under fire for modern slavery allegations, um, and all of their production occurs in the UK. So that shows that labour rights issues and human rights issues are still a concern in in our own backyards. So, yeah, it's mixed. There's a way to go. We need to keep, need to keep advocating for change. And if you're buying um, clothes, please download the app. Um, it, it'll help you look good and have a good conscience as well. Um, I use it. Thank you so much, Sandra. I had a chat with James Whitmore about the bigger picture. Hi, thanks, Vivian. Yeah, I spoke to Dr. Ted Trainer, who is a conjoint lecturer at the School of Social Sciences at the University of New South Wales, but he's probably 
best well known for his work on simplicity. Um, he has his website is thesimpleway.info, and he has been one of the real advocates for a more simple lifestyle. So, you know, we're talking about greenwashing here in this context of you know maybe businesses aren't telling us the full impact, mm. the full environmental impact of the products they're selling us, or maybe even deliberately misleading us. But that kind of suggests, I mean, the whole reason businesses do this is because, you know, they're trying to say there are greener ways of consuming. We can consume our way out of these issues. And so I spoke to Ted because Ted has this really interesting perspective and I asked, you know, can we consume our way out of these problems? And he said, no emphatically not. His view is that really we need absolute radical change to the way we live. Um, we are consuming in a way that completely exceeds the limits of the planet. So we need to drastically reduce our consumption over the next 30 years. And he says the only way to do that is a real radical transformation that's led by communities. So yeah, I, picture. yeah. I'd like to pick you up on the 30 years because I've been thinking about that because I've looked at a lot of the greenwashing ads. I was looking at gas ads and they all presuppose 2050 as the deadline. And that means that their assets, their oil, their coal, their gas especially, these massive assets, all their share price depends on those assets being used. So does that mean that they plan to be exploiting all that resource for the next 30 years? Well, no, they can't. This decade is the decade where we've got to bring it We've all seen the graphs where you just go up to a point and then fall over the end and we have to decarbonise. So I'm wondering what Ted says about how do you degrowth an economy that's built on growth, number one, and how do you take the blindfold off the community who's really thinking about 2050 when they're going, yes, yes, this ad sort of saying 2030. We're deluding ourselves and advertising. We know it's this awful devil's bargain. It's so attractive advertising, isn't it? And the greenwash, we sort of want to believe it because it would absolutely. let us go on with our way of life. What does Ted say about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's so uh, appealing, these ideas. Um, but it's also, I mean, Ted, I think, would say it's denial. He, sa he says really the starting point is to talk about it. So we you know to really spread these ideas through the community that, you know, we're really using way more resources than the planet can handle. The second thing I was surprised by this, he said, join a community organisation such as a transition town or a transition movement or something like that. And he said that is more important than making changes in your own lifestyle to be more frugal. He said that is important, but he said the most important thing is to build those community networks around transition movements and things like that because they are the things that will see us through this radical change, this transition. So I thought that was interesting in that he said it wasn't that the, the individual changes to lifestyles were not as important as building these networks. Yeah, and I think that echoes a lot of what the people in UK are saying, like George Monbiot, he wrote that book, Out of the Wreckage, and it was all about building communities, building, you know, friendships, really resilient sort of neighbourhoods where people can trust each other and can go through hard times together, as in the Depression, as in the war. You know, we know what the picture looks like but also not just George Monbiot, but the Extinction Rebellion people are saying something simple. All their webinar, all their web you know, videos sort of show people getting together, communal food, communal gardens, communal 
trust money, even communal money, different kind of currency. So there's some ideas out there, but I don't feel that those ideas are really current in Australia, apart from the Sustainable Living Festival where you see various little groups are doing that, but it doesn't seem as... Do you feel that it's this is a, an attractive idea to many people in Australia? Well, it's interesting because when we were talking, the pandemic came up, and obviously the pandemic has offered us this moment of pause and possible reset. And Ted said he was impressed by what people were doing, like gardening, you know, returning to things that we do more locally, not travelling as much, returning to kind of handmade things. But he said it's lacking that community networking element. So Uh even though those, those activities on their own, they're good, it's nothing without those community networks. So, I, I mean, that's interesting. I, I think there's an opportunity there. You know, we're in the middle of a really, a, a really tough time. But yeah, with more community networks, that could that could really be the start of something, I guess. Well, at the beginning, everyone was talking about mutual aid for people who were going to be in lockdown, vulnerable people. But I don't know how long. I haven't heard much about that since then. And for me, the only community solidarity i've come up against are in these big local groups against something like a like the pillager you know the narrow gas in the pillager you know the the groups that have converged on that they've formed 10 year long friendships because they've had to battle that now they for the moment they seem to have lost it but i've met i have been part of that myself but i don't find it as common as you find in uk so mm. let's hear from ted your interview with him and thank you for doing it and let's let's hope we're sort of sparking a few new ideas. All right Ted so in this program today we're talking about greenwashing this idea that businesses might not be fully communicating the environmental impacts of their products or in fact even deliberately misleading um, us about their environmental impact and I just want to get your thoughts on that. Um, It's kind of tied to this idea that we can consume our, our, our way out of uh, the environmental crisis we're facing. What do you think? Can we do that? No, we can't. Emphatically, no. Um, obviously, uh, the corporate world and indeed consumers in general uh, really want to go on consuming voraciously and indeed uh, increasing that all the time because economic growth is a fundamental principle of our economy. But um, there is now just a, such an overwhelming mountain of not just evidence but proof, you'd have to say, that we are far beyond levels of production and consumption that are remotely sustainable, um, even just in the rich world, let alone the notion of lifting everybody else in the world to our sort of ways and levels of consumption. And um, a lot of good, well-intentioned green people, um, I don't know about deliberately, but perhaps mostly inadvertently, assume that we can indeed, um, by implementing green technologies and changing our lifestyles to be more uh, environmentally sensitive, we can indeed persevere with this uh, very comfortable, affluent, resource-consuming way of life, while better technology and uh, maybe a better approach to our personal uh, waste and so on uh, solves the problems. Now, that is just absolutely ridiculous. If you look at the technical, um, the, the field to do with technical fixed possibilities, you, you realise that it's just totally impossible. The only way to get the resource consumption and the environmental impact down to sustainable levels 
is to dramatically cut the amount of producing and consuming going on in the world. The, the ploy that is very commonly used is the decoupling argument, the argument which um, unfortunately many economists uh, still push is that you can increase GDP without increasing resource consumption and environmental impact. And, and again, this is a technical fixed faith. Now, there is a mountain of evidence and studies that find that that is simply not true. You can increase GDP without increasing resource consumption as much in percentage terms. But all the evidence is that you cannot increase GDP without increasing resource consumption. And um, there are many studies now saying that the most impressive one is by Parikh et al. And um, only last year, they quote 300 papers that lead to the conclusion that, that the decoupling required is not happening. It's not being achieved despite enormous effort, of course, constantly by business to cut their resource costs. And indeed, it's not likely to happen. So the whole, um, if you um, see greenwashers as a, a version of this claim hyphen faith that we can go on uh, s solving our problems while still uh, not affecting our comfortable affluent growth-oriented lifestyle, that is just completely unacceptable now. Mm, it seems to have an element of denial. Um, we'll also we'll share a, a link to that paper that you mentioned there and the resources for this show. So, Ted, you've been an advocate for this idea of simplicity. Can you just tell us what, what do you mean by that? Uh, well, it's essentially to do with material consumption, that we have to live more simply in terms of both lifestyles and, very importantly, our systems. It's not just a matter of changing our lifestyles, but we need systems which do not involve anything like so much resource use. For example, our agriculture has to become highly localised, whereas at the moment it's globalised, and that means vast amounts of trucks and energy and warehouses and stuff, which you can avoid if you shift to localised systems. Um, but the concept of simplicity does not mean hardship, deprivation or impoverished cultural, spiritual, communal lives. Indeed, uh, simplicity in material consumption ways is the key to, the means to, a far richer spiritual and communal life. Um, long, long ago, um, Thoreau realised that uh, if you live simply, you free yourself from having to earn a lot of money to buy a big house and, and therefore you've got far more time to do things that matter like write poetry and plays and talk to people and sit in the sun. So uh, we're very anxious to point out that the, the advocacy of simplicity is um, not to do with um, our more uh, important cultural and personal and artistic and creative lives. It's, it's simply to do with reducing the impact on environment and, in, and uh, resource consumption rate. Mm. How simple are we talking? So, for instance, earlier this year, um, the former CSIRO scientist Graham Turner um, was quoted in an essay. He said that 
um, we'd need to reduce our consumption and our lifestyles to something equivalent to what in the West we'd think of as the 50s and 60s. So one TV per household, one car per household. Is that simple enough? No, I don't think so. Graham's done a great job in uh, helping to uh, spread awareness of the, the very serious limits to growth and overconsumption that we're into. Um, but I have, I think there's a line of argument, a numerical line of argument, which indicates that we have to go much, much more simple than that in terms of per capita resource use rates. Um, and that line of argument focuses on the um, uh, on measures like the World Wildlife Fund's Global Footprint Index. Now they're saying that uh, we in rich countries are consuming something like six to eight hectares of land per capita to sustain our lifestyles. And if you look at the world's population numbers, and it's likely 2050 population, and you ask yourself what what would happen if all those people lived the way we do in, in uh, relation to footprint numbers, the fact is we would have to go down to one-tenth of the per capita consumption of land that we now do. In other words, by 2050, if everybody lived the way we do uh, now in terms of the consumption of land, we would need to use at least 10 times the amount of land that is now available on the planet. And if you factor in the claim by the World Wildlife Fund, World Wildlife Fund that the planet already is consuming resources equal to what 1.7 planet Earth could supply sustainably, then you end up with multiples close to 30. In other words, mm. you end up with the need to reduce our per capita consumption by a factor of 30 by 2050 if everyone was going to live like Australians would be then. So I think um, Graham's numbers are far too optimistic um, and that the reductions are just far beyond what most green or left people really face up to. And again, I want to stress that that, uh, in a sense, is obviously alarming, but in terms of how life would be if we move down to what we call a simpler way, it's not a, a source of alarm or deprivation or hardship. It's about liberating ourselves to get onto a totally different path which enables us to live well on very, very low use rates of resources. So what can each of us do? Because, I mean, in Australia, the the majority of us live in this, you know, this kind of high consumption lifestyle, which is a long way from this simpler way that you're talking about. What are some of the first steps that people can take to start along that pathway? Okay, the most important step of all, by far, is to talk, is to talk about the issues we've been dealing with because the problem, the global problem, is awareness. It's about changing from a worldview which 99% of people seem to take for granted and that is that affluence and expensive resource systems like globalised trade are possible, that if we change our technologies and tweak our lifestyles a bit, we can go on like that 
Now, the first and biggest problem is to get people to realise the challenges to that understanding of the situation. And we can all do that by just raising the issues, talking about them and raising the difficulties in that line of faith. But if it comes down then to action, what can I do, then changing your lifestyle to live more frugally is not very important. It is important, but far more important is to join the groups that are trying to alter our systems, especially our the groups who are into transition town sorts of initiatives and eco-village initiatives. And there are lots of uh, community gardens, things like that coming on now, whereby people are trying to move locally to ways of organising, especially cooperatively, collectively, to develop local economies which will uh, shift us in the direction of local self-sufficiency and resilience and community solidarity. So we've got systems that do not require, for example, the, the shipping of food in from long distance in packages. Um, and I, th I would think that at the level below that in importance is indeed changing lifestyles to, you know, weed out the things that, that are wasteful and to, and to not see that as a matter of hardship and sacrifice to save the planet, but as a process of shifting to more enjoyable ways, like being more able to grow some of your own food, to be able to enjoy, as I do, repairing my old clothes and to sharing things locally and to develop those sources of recreation which are about crafts and arts and so on rather than just consuming. Like, I haven't watched TV for something like four decades, I think, now, because I've got lots of hobbies and interests, and some, many of which are productive things to pass my leisure time with. It's so interesting what you're saying about the importance of, um, of, of joining communities versus um, uh, frugality in your own lifestyle. And I just wondered, you know, this is happening in a particular context, the pandemic um, has perhaps given us a time to pause and reflect. I mean, in some quite dramatic ways, um, uh, global emissions will reduce this year. They won't permanently. Um, do you have you have do you think you've seen um, people, you know, thinking more about living simply or the way the things that you're talking about due to the pandemic? Oh yes, quite quite definitely. I think much more awareness of um, the availability and desirability of more home-based sources of um, leisure and interest and so on. And of course, the big surge in uh, gardening—they're good things. Um, but unfortunately, the most important element in the simpler way, I think, which is the communal and the collective the cooperative localism, that has not been enabled because of the need for social distance. But mm -hmm. as we see it, in the coming few years, maybe a decade or so, everything's going to get more difficult, more problematic through the, the devastating resource and ecological impact of the consumer capitalist way. And things at the local level will become more difficult and that will push us more towards getting together locally to develop local systems of sharing and gardening 
and um, committees and working bees to do things locally. Um, We believe that um, this society is heading for the rocks. It's uh, well into very serious uh, limits to growth problems of many kinds. It's the pandemic sort of arena is only one. The energy arena is another. But there's a long list of problems stacking up because we're running through the limits to growth. And that's going to increasingly impact, and I think suddenly, on our welfare and our capacity to get goods and to afford those goods in the next decade or so. And I'm saying it's probably as short as a decade. Um, But before long, we're going to find ourselves pushed at the local level to get together and try and organise better provision for ourselves. Uh, Now, that'll be um, difficult um, and a time, we think, a time of serious troubles is coming. But the upside is that that will push us towards these more cooperative, communal, local ways, which to go to get big global impacts down. Mm. Ted, I just want to ask you, how did you come to this simpler way? Was there a moment of awakening for you? No, not a, not a moment. I'm lucky in that my father bought a property in the bush long ago and I'm lucky in that we were pretty poor because that got us into uh, a measure of self-sufficiency. But after that, I think going through high school and uni and just reading and thinking, it just seemed obvious that we had problems of a sustainability kind stacking up for us. And since then, of course, I've attended to that arena and that literature and just uh, long ago become very clearly aware that um, this is an enormous problem and a turning point in history. Uh, The old revolutions were for freeing, uh, you know, humans from the domination of ruling classes and being able to turn up the throttles in the factory so we could all live affluently. Well, we realise now that that vision is the wrong one and the revolutionary vision now has to be about moving to communal communal based uh, self-sufficiency cooperative systems systems which are not in the least about affluence and growth but about improving the quality of life on the on the lowest possible resource use rates you're listening to Radio 3CR I'm Ian Angus longtime community radio broadcaster in Canada and uh, editor of the website climateandcapitalism.com. Thanks for listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show on Greenwash. Thanks to James and Kurt for their interviews and to Andy for the podcast. Thank you to Dr. Ted Trainer and to Sandra Capone who gave us their ideas and to Martin Zavan at Greenpeace and Rima Rattan at 3CR for encouragement. Thanks also to Juice Media and the other advertisers for the quotes I've taken from their work. Next week, Kurt is taking us to the battle for Beetaloo. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. Hello, everyone. I'm Julian. I'm Chris and we're from Climate for Change. And we've got actions that you can take right now. With the budget being announced this week, we have been watching and listening to how it will be fitting in with the gas-fired recovery, as well as the announcements last month where Prime Minister Scott Morrison plans to open up new gas reserves and increase gas transportation. 
The government plans to set aside part of the budget to underwrite gas projects where private investment is lacking, which could very well cement Australia's near future in gas. If you want to take action on this issue and many others, get in contact with Climate for Change's members of Parliament Engagement Group and we'll help you engage with your MP and make a difference. Over to you, Julian. Thanks, Chris. The total in federal spending on the environment has been cut by 40% over the last seven years. Much more money and effort is needed to halt environmental decline. There's simply no two ways about it. Look out for more actions next week once the budget's full details have been analysed. This week, make sure to look out for your postal ballot for council elections. And if you like this segment, the work of the MPEG team or the Climate Update, please consider contributing to Climate for Change's annual crowdfunder. We're off to a flying start with nearly $100,000 raised in the first week. And with your help, we'll reach our target and keep fighting for strong climate action. Thanks again from Julian. And Chris. And make sure to head to climateforchange.org.au and sign up to the Climate Update for more news and action. And we'll say goodbye with Archie Roach singing It's Not Too Late. I'm so sorry for the world today With all the killing and all the hate I get down on my knees and pray That it's not too late That it's not too late for peace And it's not too late for love For all the children everywhere I ask the old ones up above Won't you hear this prayer? 